and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander in Paris, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, who usually is in Cape Town, South Africa, at the Stellenbosch University's Center for Chinese Studies, but today is joining us from Johannesburg. How are you today? Very well, thank you. Good. Okay, so we're going to talk about three topics today. First, we're going to head on up to uh, to Zambia and to Lusaka to talk about China-Zambia ties and the perception that they're getting better. I will kind of make a contention that I don't think they're getting better. I think they've always been actually pretty good. It's just the Western press that has a slight misunderstanding on this. So we'll kind of go on that subject. Then we'll head over to. Tanzania for some comments by the new Chinese ambassador there to call it the most important country in all of East Africa. Uh, and then um, we'll end on what we're calling 3QI, which is the three-question interview. Uh, Johanna Janssen, a Swedish researcher who actually now is studying in Denmark uh, and is an expert on uh, resource extraction by the Chinese in Gabon and DRC, did an excellent debrief for us on the sickle mines deal, which he's been doing a lot of research on from uh, the, the DRC in uh, in the Congo. So uh, let's get started, first of all, with China-Zambia ties. Cobus, uh, there's not really a news peg on this particular issue. We just, uh, last week, there, there was one uh, tweet that I put out that says the uh, you know, the Zambians think are going to get about a billion dollars uh, in the new Chinese special economic zone. That that was kind of expected. Uh, Guy Scott, the vice president of Zambia, went off to Beijing in December after the election of Michael Sada and uh, apparently had a very good meeting. Uh, lots of development money coming, lots of handshakes, more investment money coming. Um, so all in all, things to be things are looking up. What's your uh, kind of assessment of China-Zambia relations as they stand today? Well, you know, kind of a lot of people um, were making the point that that this is, you know, China-Zambia relations were breaking down a bit because of Sata's more kind of incendiary, um, you know, utterances about Chinese companies before their election. And since he came into power, that it's now being patched up. I tend to agree with you that it probably wasn't as broken as it looked. Um, however... Um, I was also wondering whether whether what we're seeing now is maybe the SATA government kind of getting their own rhetoric more under control, um, and that they they they're trying to not to do not have any of these kind of anti-Chinese um, gaffes kind of coming out into the press anymore. No, I I I don't think that. I mean, take a look at the American Republican primary right now. When you're running for elections, you and you're in the opposition and in the minority, you can say whatever you want without any consequence at all. Sada, for all those years, was in the minority, was in the opposition, was outside of government, and at the end of the day, he's a politician. And politicians say things to get attention, they say things to build a constituency, and they say things to, you know, to draw people to their cause. Uh, I think he was doing what politicians do best, which was playing all sides, and he was, you know, he throw he would throw these kind of flamethrower kind of statements that, you know, Zambia is the new Chinese province, you know, he'll kick the Chinese out if they don't play by our rules. Well, he's a tough negotiator in that sense, but he's no fool. And and what I've learned from talking to people who have dealt with Sada directly, uh, they say, listen, he never had any intention to, to kick the Chinese out. He just wants the Chinese to abide by the same rules that they demand from investors in their own country. 
And that's perfectly understandable. So I think if you, to understand Sada, you have to go beyond the sound bites that we hear in the Western press. Or even, I'm not even going to say entirely in the Western press, even in the African press we hear it. But that's the superficial Sada. And that's like judging Obama or Romney or any politician just on their kind of stump speech statements. Uh, Sada is a far more complex politician than just those quotes. And I think that's where we kind of fall down. The interesting thing for me was that, you know, kind of, I, I think I agree with you most of the, most of the way. Um, what, was, what struck me, though, was, um, was one move from Sato when um, he's, uh, you know, kind of an, an old kind of party stalwart of his, uh, Tishima Kambuili, um, who used to be the Minister of Labour, um, seemed to have picked up a tiff with, with, with Chinese, and he also blasted Indian investors in, in Zambia. Um, and Sata recently kind of bumped him down to the, to being the minister of sports. Um, so uh, one of the, the particular issue that seemed to have kind of really participated precipitated this was that Kambuili seemed to have picked up a fight with uh, a Chinese uh, chief medical officer at at a hospital um, in Zambia run by the Chinese, um, which then kind of uh, you know kind of and he um, he said that the the doctor was was insulting and then he withdrew his uh, his work permit, um, and that seemed to kind of blow up into a little bit of a a little bit of a kind of a you know kind of a, a diplomatic situation where the the Chinese ambassador. Got involved and the next thing we know um Kambuili has been has basically been canned um what do you think about how, how did that work well i'm not i don't have too many specifics on that i saw the headlines cross but i didn't get into too many details on 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 the specifics on it but it does kind of tend that's how politics works too i mean um i'm not surprised by that you know the chinese are one of zambia's m most active investors but again going back to sada's main point the Chinese are in Zambia because there's money to be made there. They're in Zambia because they need to be in Zambia. Not, it's not an optional thing. Sada makes the point over and over again that if they could go somewhere else, they would go somewhere else. And so he takes that point and uses it as leverage and as, as you know, in negotiating with with uh, with the Chinese. And this is a great example to go back to what uh, Solange Chalelach, who is the PhD uh, candidate here in Paris at Sciences Po, and who's really the preeminent expert. Uh, on on Sino-Zambian relations, and she w was featured prominently in that Al Jazeera documentary, uh, King Cobra Meets the Dragon. Um, and I think she, she makes it very, very a clear point there that both sides have to gain, but at the same time, Sada is going to lead the way at, at breaking the Chinese in terms of their idea that they can come in and do anything they want. And in so many ways, Sada is setting the tone for the rest of the continent. You see the Ghanaians now looking at Sada as a model, the Ethiopians looking at Sada as a model for how to deal with the Chinese and how to make sure that you can get a fair deal out of the Chinese. I don't think the Zambians are there yet. I don't think they're getting entirely a fair deal, but I think they put the Chinese on notice to say that if you don't play by these rules, there may be consequences. I won't say there will be consequences. I think there may be consequences. Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, I think, you know, anything that gives Africa a fair shake, um, you know, kind of in, in, in terms of these deals, you know, is, is I think, to be to be praised. Um, you know, kind of, I I tend to wonder sometimes, though, how um, how this kind of rhetoric can, can, can you know, how, uh, what kind of effect it could have on minority populations within these African countries, though. Give me an example here. Well, you know, the, my problem is I don't really have a very concrete okay. example. 
well, uh, you know, kind of, it's just, um, it, I have to say, like, uh, you know, um, you know, we, we've, we've spoken in the past um, about how complex Chinese immigration and involvement in Africa is, you know, kind of how all of the Chinese in Africa are not coming from the same class. A lot oh. of them are, are poor, a lot of them are, um, you know, come from very rural areas. And I just, um, I, I always get a little bit like a tinge of worry when, when um, China becomes this kind of a, a monolith, you know, kind of in African rhetoric. Well, I think then that brings up, you know, Idi Amin in, in, in Uganda and what happened with the, uh, you know, with the Indians who were all expelled from there and, you know, South Asians who were expelled. And there is this kind of nationalist vein that runs through a lot of Southern African countries and Sub-Saharan African countries, which can get, can be quickly turned into this dangerous populism. Uh, I, I don't think we're there. I don't think we're anywhere close. I think this idea of that we're hearing out of Ghana, we're hearing out of Zambia, and we're hearing out of Ethiopia, with the three countries I see taking the most progressive lead on this in terms of dealing with the Chinese uh, in a more fair way, demanding the Chinese respect labor laws, demanding accountability and a little bit more transparency from the Chinese, um, I think in some ways they may you know, set the trend for other countries. Um, hard to tell, though, if w what, you know, we as outsiders, you know, we can't really tell. Is this just rhetoric? Is it just good politics? Do we, to convince people like you and me, the, you know, progressive liberal elites who sit on Paris and Johannesburg and kind of think about these things? Or is something substantively really changing here? Um, you know, and I, let's, let's keep our eyes again on, on the Ghana gas deal and also on, on, on labor reform. In Zambia, and will the, the Zambians tighten up those labor laws that affect the the, the copper mines and, and enforce those labor laws so that the Chinese are held accountable? Um, that was the ultimate demand out of the Human Rights Watch report, which I found to be extraordinarily flawed. Um, nonetheless, that was one of the the, key, the kind of key comments to come out of it was you know enforcement of labor laws uh, at national at the national level. Yes, and I think you know it's very interesting. The Chinese this week was was making a point on how they are going to respect Ghana's laws, you know, kind of, so that was interesting that that, that was kind of mentioned by, by, you know, kind of in, 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 by name. And then in the second place, it seemed, the unions in Zambia seemed to have negotiated a, a pay rise for miners. And what was interesting for me is these, the, this pay rise was covered not only by Chinese companies, but also by, by other companies like Glencore, for example, which if I'm not mistaken, might be, a, is a South African company, yeah. um, you know, kind of, and, uh, you know, kind of a whole bunch of other kind of players in the copper field in 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 Zambia, they all hiked their their their, their, um, their wages. So it seems like it, this might be you know kind of this might have a kind of a more positive positive a wider positive fallout than just simply China um, China Zambia relations. Okay, so uh, so kind of China Zambia relations, you know, a little bit of fear after the election that they were going into a rough patch, but seem to be heading off into a, a little bit more stability and, and, and clearly setting the tone for the rest of the continent in many respects. So we'll kind of keep an eye on that. Okay, moving on now to our second story. Let's head over to Tanzania, where a story crossed this week where uh, the new ambassador to Tanzania, he, uh, Dr. Liu Youqing, uh, had an event where he came out and he said, Tanzania is the most important strategic ally for China in East Africa. And that caught my attention on Twitter in part because... I was always working under the assumption that Kenya would have been the most important. Kenya, of course, is uh, a, a becoming a hub for st strategic supply. There's now 
uh, direct air flights going into Kenya. Uh, Huawei has a very big presence in Kenya. Of course, the big major fiber optic line connecting uh, Africa, the sub-Saharan continent, to the world goes through Kenya. So logistics are important in Kenya. Uh, so always Kenya's been the, the kind of the center uh, of East Africa. And here we have Tanzania. What do you think he was alluding to? Because it wasn't very clear in the article, Kovas. Well, yeah. I also, I also couldn't get any kind of any any real indication of what exactly he meant. Um, a few things did, however, kind of strike me. One is that in the last few days, they seem to have found a whole bunch of of natural gas deposits off the coast of Tanzania and also the coast of Mozambique. Um, so that might have, you know, that that might be. I, I'm not sure how it would be involved, but I, I, I can, you know, I know already that that some Chinese companies seem to be involved in in or wanting to get involved in in the bidding process or to explore that. The other thing might also be that um, that Tanzania might be very well placed, um, you know, kind of to to be one of the one of the centres uh, for the need to to police the kind of Indian Ocean, you know, kind of against, particularly against piracy. So that might be another strategic re- reason why Tanzania might be might be important. Okay. The other thing is also, I think the you know, it seems to me that the Chinese are are in, involving a lot of uh, you know a whole, a whole bunch of East African countries, you know, kind of so obviously if you know Tanzania might be I don't know how they would be more strategically important than Kenya, but the whole that whole region is is strategically completely crucial to them. Well, let's bring up uh, a couple of the points that uh, Dr. Liu Yuqing, Ambassador Liu Yuqing, brought up. So, from the article, it says Tanzania is the most strategic country in the African continent, East Africa in particular. Adding that China is ready to cooperate with in its development endeavors. Okay, let's go to the quotes. We can see stable economy, improved livelihood of the Tanzanian people, especially in recent years, whereby the Tanzania economy has developed steadily and smoothly. Blah, blah, blah. Here's where it gets interesting. Uh, you have to see the importance of Tanzania from the point that its advantages are obvious. Every day I can see cargoes and ships in the Indian Ocean. That's to your point. Already Tanzania has established a very good center of transportation and communication in the eastern parts of the continent, and we hope in the future she will establish logistics and manufacturing center to cover the eastern and southern part of the continent. A couple of things that kind of came up there as clues. Number one, uh, of course, Indian Ocean trade. So that seems to be very, very interesting to be a new area to go for. The other is that I think the Chinese, and I'm, I'm hearing this more and more, are getting some kind of combat fatigue a little bit, that they've been investing in places like Sudan, in Egypt, in the Sinai. They've just had more kidnappings in the Sinai recently. Uh, they've had uh, problems in, in, in the DRC in Congo. Uh, certainly in Libya, there have been problems. And there's this sense that they want to kind of, you know, put down some roots in places that aren't quite so volatile. Uh, Tanzania may be an appealing place to do that, if not just because of the natural gas deposits that they're finding as well. What do you think on that? Yeah, I think I think you probably have a point. The you know Tanzania has has had a reputation as as a relatively stable country for a while, um, and yeah, I, I can see how particularly if if the the Chinese seem to be as as we've as we've been speculating uh, you know over the last few podcasts if they seem to be moving uh, towards not you know combining na- um, natural resource extraction with also a certain amount of manufacturing um, in terms of their their um, you know. Increasing kind of investments in in factories in in Africa, um, Tanzania might make sense um, to to do to deal with both of those at the same time. Well, and just to to round out this topic, he also addressed 
uh, the issue of colonization. Now, this has been one of the more sensitive issues that a lot of Western, uh, both leaders and diplomats, have been accusing the Chinese, and this is in the popular zeitgeist in the West for that what the Chinese are doing in Africa is a new form of colonization. None other than Hillary Clinton herself, David Cameron, the Prime Minister of the UK, uh, you know, came out, uh, you know, and said and used that very word colonization. Uh, Ambassador Yo comes out and he says, and he brings up a very good point that I think a lot of Chinese over, I mean, Africans overlook that China itself was the victim of colonization. And uh, so he says, colonization is a root of evil. Both China and Tanzania suffered and confronted the menace. We will never want its presence in the world. Now, reading through the tea leaves on that, I think it's just very interesting that China, in its public statements, is bringing up its own colonial victimization type of history uh, and as a way to bond with African countries and to say what we are doing may be criticized, and we've talked about labor policies, mercantilist policies and whatnot, but it's not colonization. Yeah, I think so. Also, you know, kind of, I think it, it brings up in a coded way the kind of how long China's uh, relationship with Tanzania has been going on, particularly the, you know, the relationship between, uh, you know, between um, the, you know, China of the Mao era and uh, Julius Nyerere. Um, you know, the, it's it's just it, it just it's this kind of reminder that look, we've been we've been you know on the same side of these kind of fights for a while. That's right, and let's not forget, of course, going back to the Mao era, uh, the creation of the Tazara Railway. Um, and China has stuck by its friends. I mean, you know, Robert Mugabe was a long, long, long time friend of China, and Chinese still stick by him. So they're very, very loyal when it comes down to these old relationships, old, of course, by contemporary standards. Uh, but, you know, Zhou Enlai really, you know, made a commitment to, to, to Zambia back in, 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 the, in those Cold War years. And so that, that obviously plays a part today. Okay, so let's uh, finish out in the DRC. Uh, and we launched a new section on the site uh, called 3QI, which I still think is something of a mystery. I got a couple emails this week asking me what was 3QI, so I have to do a little bit better job on explaining it. But it's the three-question interview. Uh, and, Cobus, I actually got the idea for 3QI for when I was at a restaurant here in Paris, and they offered a uh, the smallest sundae in the world. And it was a little chocolate sundae in a shot glass. And that way you can kind of get all the benefits of the Sunday, but none of the calories. And so the kind of calorically obsessed French made sure that that. So I thought that that's what actually sparked the idea of like, how can we get some of these great ideas and these great discussions from academics, from writers, from journalists, from anybody, everyday people, you name it, ask them three questions and get the responses. So the first person to respond to my call out was um, a PhD candidate in Denmark at Riskilde University. Um, her name is Johanna Janssen. She's been featured on the podcast uh, in the past, uh, and she has a very unique specialization. Her specialization is resource extraction policies by the Chinese in Gabon and the DRC, and that's where her specialty is, and she spent a considerable amount of time in the DRC. And she has uh, focused a lot of effort and a lot of research on this question of the sickle mines deal. And let me just kind of refresh everybody on the sickle mines deal uh, very quickly. This was one of those groundbreaking deals that just awoke everybody up to the Chinese in Africa. Back in 2007, at the time, it was a $9 billion infrastructure for natural resources deal. And, and it really just terrified the West. Uh, and, and it really kind of also, a lot of the assumptions that we have today about the Chinese were formed as a result of the press coverage from this first sicko mines deal. So, Cobus, uh, when you had a chance to look through it, did anything that Johanna say change some of the perceptions you have about the Chinese or in, in the history of their involvement, particularly in the DRC? 
Well, one thing that jumped out at me that I thought she she really put incredibly succinctly was a, a very fundamental kind of philosophical difference regarding uh, development between the Chinese and the West. You know, kind of uh, the idea that in the West, um, of Western thinking, that um, in order for development to occur, one needs to try and get rid of corruption to the extent that you can. Um, and, the, you know, so, so the West, in, uh, you know, they, they tend to, to uh, invest a lot in, in things like capacity building in terms of governance and transparency and so on in order to get the, trans- the, the corruption down in order for, the, for business to then develop. While the Chinese kind of takes it from the, they take it from the other side saying that, um, you know, kind of with, without economic growth, um, you know, there's, there's no there's no way that corruption can lessen. You know, kind of, as long as a country is is poor and in trauma, corruption, it will be endemic. Um, and, you know, kind of, so so you need to kind of, in, you know, get get involved in corrupt countries, uh, you know, if you, if you can see a business opportunity there, and then take a hit to a certain extent, you know, kind of, and absorb some of the problems involved with the corruption, and then with with the kind of assumption that if you, if that country develops, then they'll be able to kind of grow, uh, you know, organs to lessen the, the corruption. Well, I was wondering um, if, if you agree with that. Yeah, with, with I that. Mean, well, I think it's, and again, and this goes back to a Deborah Braudigan point, um, which is the Chinese are employing their own experiences in their development policies. Uh, and this is how the Chinese develop. This is how in the past 35 years we've seen the biggest transformation of any economy in any society in the world, more people moving from just below subsistence poverty to just above subsistence poverty, not through aid, not through political liberalization, not through political transparency, Mm -hmm. but through economic development. And that is what the Chinese have done exceptionally well. Uh, So they're they're exporting that now to, to other parts of the world. So I... You know, it worked very, very well to a point in China, and I think in some ways it's it, it it's a good contrast to what the West is doing. And I come, and I've said this on this podcast before many times, I am a huge critic of the Western way of, of development. We have put a trillion dollars in the past 50 years into African development, and we have not seen the results. Uh, it just doesn't work. It's a corrupt business in my mind. So the idea of trying something, anything new, is good in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, one thing that's interesting for me in, in terms of this case, I mean, could, the DRC is, is super corrupt, you know, um, but it's a kind of corruption that 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 keeps growth from developing. While you know, kind of China is frequently also criticised for for corruption. You know, kind of there's there's a lot of there's a lot of um, allegations of of low level uh, corruption among officials. You know, kind of in oh, China, yeah. but in China it's different kind of corruption. You know, I've lived in both places, and and both are extraordinarily corrupt at all different levels. And you know, at at, at the one, the the thing that the key difference between the Chinese corruption and the DRC is that fundamentally the system in the DRC is rotten. Um, and in China, at at big parts of its system are not rotten. There is endemic corruption, particularly at the local level, um, but the entire system isn't corrupt. And, and that gives it some possibility. The, the one point that I found very, very interesting from her research, and this, this completely shattered what I originally had thought, was this idea that the state-owned enterprises are acting out of market concerns rather than kind of some kind of central planning coordinated out of Beijing. And I thought that was very interesting because I, I just, for some reason, had this mindset that there was some kind of 
coordination happening in Beijing to kind of bring all these actors and entities together in what they're doing in, in Africa, or in, not only just in Africa, maybe in other parts of the world. But in fact, it actually, they seem to be pursuing market opportunities. Now, they get some support through the Chinese Exim Bank, um, but at the end of the day, there there's a, a lot of risk on the Chinese companies going into places like the DRC, and I'd underestimated that, and I thought her her kind of how she addressed that was was very interesting. And that's a big misperception on the eyes of most observers on the outside who think that, you know, this is the old Soviet model, which is everything is centrally controlled. Yes, yes. I yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I think I think it's one of those situations where, you know, in the past we, we were talking about how uh, how we need a new world, a new word, something that's not we you know, we need to get rid of the word colonialism and, and find some kind of new word to deal with uh, with Chinese engagement in Africa. And Maybe we also need to find new kind of more sophisticated language in terms of of describing what central planning means in the Chinese context. You know, um, I. In, but in relation to that, I, what your other question to her that I thought was 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 great was, um, you know, kind of who who's actually going to come out on top here? You know, kind of the DRC or China, and um, it still seems to be up in the air. I mean, you know, kind of the Chinese Exim Bank could. If, if this, you know, if for some reason um, the, everything falls apart and they don't get the kind of resources that they planned on, they they might be taking a hit up to uh, you know kind of three billion dollars. Um, so I, I was wondering, um, in case you know these deals turn sour. Um, in, in in the kind of very complicated, interconnected um, nature of, of Chinese state-owned enterprises, who actually pays for that if, in case the profits don't come out? We have no idea. And I think that anybody professes to you that they actually know is... Uh is either exaggerating or lying or both, uh, in part because the opaqueness of the, the finance structure here is so, you know, impossible to, to understand. So, for example, The Economist had this special section, I think about three or four months ago, um, about kind of the financing arms that come out of Hong Kong. And now Hong Kong and Beijing aren't necessarily talking to, to each other. Hong Kong and some of these financial, these very murky finance houses are then pushing the money into Africa uh, and, and all over the world. And so it's very difficult to trace back the accountability and the actual origins of the money and who's profiting. At the end of the day, though, according to this economist report, um, the Chinese were doing very, very well in their profits on these investments. So even if they lose $3 billion in the DRC, uh, when you look at a portfolio from some of these, the, you know, they're effectively like hedge funds, basically, that are throwing investment money all over the continent. Um, you know, when you're making billions on, especially on the oil money, uh, $3 billion here may not actually be that much. And it's hard to imagine, but the figures are actually quite staggering. So... My best understanding, and I, again, will put my humility out there to say I, I'm not an expert in the finance side of it, but just from what I've been able to, to pick up, both from reading Deborah Braudigam, both from reading The Economist and the, some of these other reports, is that it's extraordinarily difficult to trace the money. Yeah, yeah, you know, kind of it seems like, you know, in case someone wants to do, uh, you know, kind of new research, that might be a very, a very good field for them. I, I think that would be a very, very difficult nut to crack because there's not an enormous amount of incentive for these Chinese entities, whether they, they are the state or the semi-private hedge funds to release their, their accounting. So I, I, would, I would say that's, you know, I mean, it's difficult enough to even do it at the UN, at the USAID, and at the European Union level, much less in a government that really doesn't actively 
promote itself in its transparency. So we'll see. But one of the issues we will uh, continue to to look into. Uh, so that'll do it for this edition of the China Africa podcast. Kobus, if people want to follow you on Twitter, where can they find you? I am at Stadenesque. That's S T A D E N E S Q U E. Excellent. And uh, have you have you been growing in followers since we've started the podcast? I have. I have. Okay, yeah. Good. Okay. <laughs> it's thrilling. Excellent. So, uh, and you can find me. I'm at uh, E O Lander. So that's E O L A N D E R uh, over on Twitter, and I'm tweeting every day. Uh, on China and Africa. I kind of take the top headlines and, and kind of put them out. Uh, and I'm doing now kind of spreading my tweets out. I was People were criticizing me for kind of throwing a burst out. So now I'm tweeting over a 24-hour period uh, so that so if you're in Asia or if you're in Africa or if you're in Europe, you'll get a little, little bit of tweets, but you can always check out my, my feed as it is. And of course, you can always find us uh, at uh, on the ChinaAfricaProject.com website. That's ChinaAfricaProject.com. Dot com where we're trying to add as much content as we can and keep up with our day jobs at the same time. So that'll do it for this edition. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next week.